Good morning, Mission View. Uh, you may be seated. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning in our service. Uh, we're going to set up the service kind of like the psalmist will often do a psalm, like Psalm 140. There's instruction from the word, and then they hit this place called a selah. It's a pause and reflect. And so we're dividing the message up into three parts, and between each part, there will be a song for us to pause and reflect. We'll have a prayer time. And so I hope that this uh, uh, challenges your heart as we look at God's Word. In our first section, we're going to be looking at first or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where we picked, off, picked up last week or dropped off last week. We're going to pick up this week, and we're going to talk about continuing this idea of working for God. And the work that we have to do this week is a work of faithfulness, that we would be a faithful people because we have a faithful God. God is always faithful all the time, but the variable here is that we may not always be faithful. We may not always listen to what God has for us to say. And so the challenge for us is to, for us to be a faithful people. Um, I want to read a letter that I received this week from one of our missionaries, Benny Matthews. Benny Matthews works in northern India in a very difficult area, and there's a great amount of persecution. And I felt like it was worth us le learning from our brothers and sisters in Christ that are in other places that are persecuted, the lesson of faithfulness from them. This is what Benny writes. He says, Dear praying friends, Persecution is not going away. We can only pray that God will strengthen his people who serve all over the world, especially in the areas of high persecution. Please pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. I bring to you an urgent request. Before leaving for India, I received news from a pastor stand. On July 29th, Pastor Johan Mari was brutally killed by Moist. He was 45 years old and he leaves behind four children. Pastor Johan started out at a Bible institute in his education and finished in 2015. But long before this, 13 years previous, he had started evangelizing in his village and he saw 20 people come to faith in Christ from that tribal community east of Godavari district in the state of Andhra Parash. The morning that he was killed, he had just finished a three-day fasting and prayer meeting that lasted till 3 p.m. At 8.30 p.m., he had prayer time with his family and then later went to bed. At 11 p.m. that night, he heard dogs barking outside, so he came out with a flashlight to see what was happening. Suddenly, Moas came and surrounded him with guns, knives, and axes. He had an Indian wrap around him, so they took it off of him and used it to tie his hands behind his back while blindfolding him with his undershirt. They tied his wife to a wooden post right outside the house. Now, I want you to know in his letter, he gave more, many graphic pictures that I chose not to put in the PowerPoint because of the nature of them. They dragged him into the wilderness and stabbed him several times, coaxing him to deny his faith. After all, all the torture, he refused to deny Christ. His head was axed off. When the church elders asked what they had done with Pastor Johann, the Moas said that he was lying nearby. 
they found the dead body with a note on him which read, if Eli, Johann's older brother, and others do not stop preaching, they will suffer the same way. He continues to write, friends, this is such a gruesome, heartbreaking story, but it demonstrates the cost that millions of Christians are paying daily for the sake of the gospel. We cannot stand back and let it happen. We need to bring these people to prayer before the, our almighty God. Would you kindly pray? I am still shocked after reading this story. I want to bring it to light because the media does not report the atrocities against Christians around the world. To think that this happened where our church planners work, right in places we've been, that we've been or mean to go, is just mind-boggling. I ask all believers if you would please go to your knees and pray to our great God. Pray for Pastor Johann's wife who, and her four children, Rebecca, Raja, David, and Solomon. Pray for the state of Andhra Parash and all of God's people working there and pray for Mr. Elijah, Johann's brother, and the rest of the church that they would be strengthened. Sincerely, Benny Matthews. Church, when we hear reports like this, all of a sudden, I believe Pastor Johann enters into this kind of hall of fame, the cloud of witnesses of those that have been so faithful and have given us an example so many thousand miles away. And when we hear examples of this, we, we realize that some of the things that we hold in the West become all of a sudden insignificant. In the West, we measure things sometimes by whether or not we have, you know, just awesome, an awesome style of music that everybody likes. Or sometimes we're looking at the kind of children's ministry or the youth ministry and what they do and do not have. Or we look at the flavor of the preaching as to whether I like it or I don't like it. Or we factor in the coolness factor of a church. Do they look hip? Do they, do they have all these things going for them? And when we start realizing and seeing examples in contrast to these mentalities, we realize that all these mentalities are so superficial. But what God is actually looking for in the church are the same qualities that we see in these believers overseas. And this is what we learn, that God wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be faithful to him first and foremost. He wants us to be faithful to each other in the body of Christ. God wants us to honor his word above all else. He wants us to strive for holiness. He wants us to strive to be a generous people. He wants us to strive to live out our faith in a worthy manner of the gospel. These are the values. These are the things. These are the characteristics that matter most in the church. And I know you agree. And so our first lesson today on faithfulness is learned by our brother. And so in a moment, I'm going to, uh, actually, David Lawtney is going to come up and pray specifically for this ministry. David's part, one of our youth workers. He helps out in the youth ministry. He's faithful in that, and he's going to be leading us in prayer in a moment. But right now, what I'd like for us to do is just to pray for the persecuted church. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, Father, 
praise you, Father, for the freedoms that we have in this country. You have given us so much. And we do not take that for granted that we have the ability to come in freedom and to worship every single week. If anything, Lord, we need to ask for forgiveness that we sometimes take that for granted and we take advantage of that and we become somewhat flippant in our faith. And we don't want to do that. We repent of that. We come before you and we ask that you would forgive us for these things. But Lord, we also lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ who do not have the luxury of freedom. Lord, we pray for believers that are in the Sudan, those that are in Iraq, those that are in Iran, those that are in northern India, those that are in Burma, those that are in North Korea, those that are in many of the countries of the world that are so restrictive in regards to faith. And Lord, we lift them up. We lift up our persecuted brothers and sisters. We ask that you would come alongside of them. We love you. We love you and thank you. We love you and thank you for what you are doing. And we pray that you would bless our time together in your word. Amen. I'd like to take a look at our first uh, point of faithfulness that God has for us. And if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to look in verses 12 to 14. But the first point of faithfulness that God wants of all of us is for us to be faithful in our conscience. Now, that's not an application point that you might be used to, but it is something that Paul is going to make an appeal to the church that he is writing to. So to set the context of our passage, the three verses that we're going to look at in 12, 13, and 14, Paul is going to give us a defense of his ministry to the Corinthian church by showing that he had a good testimony of conscience. That's what he's going to say in the passage. Now, here's the implication of what Paul is about to say. He's trying to battle what the false teachers have been saying about him. While he was absent, they were weaseling their way into the hearts of the Corinthians, and they were attempting to knock down Paul's character by slinging mud at him. And so Paul, they want Paul to appear as if he was proud, that he was self-serving, unreliable, and untrustworthy. And so this is why Paul now speaks in the manner that he is about to speak. Take a look at verse 12. He says this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have in the world with simplicity, underscore that, and godly sincerity, underscore that, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, underscore that, supremely so, uh, so towards you. We are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as, will you bo as we will boast of you. Now, what's Paul saying here? What Paul is saying is he says, I have a good conscience before you. And as a result of my good conscience, these are the things, these are the ways in which I've ministered. And there's a day that I hope that you, when we are called into account before God, that you will boast, that you will be proud of me as I have been proud of you. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. 
But the key to understanding this passage is what it means to have a testimony of conscience. A testimony of conscience. See, God has given every single one of us a conscience. We were born with that conscience. John MacArthur talks about our conscience, and he says this. The conscience is the soul's warning system. Get that. The soul's warning system, which allows human beings to contemplate their right motives and actions and make moral evaluations of what is right and wrong. In order to work as God designed it, the conscience must be informed to the highest level and best standards, which means submitting, submitting it to the Holy Spirit through God's word. So what John is saying is that we've all been born with it in order for us to understand and utilize this warning system that God has given us. It needs to be trained and educated and swarmed with God's word and his Holy Spirit in his work in our life. So let's understand conscience. Let's understand the journey of the conscience. First of all, you were born with it. We are told that in Romans chapter 2, it says this, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their heart, their conscience also bearing witness. So the idea here is that God has written his law upon our hearts, and it comes in the form of a conscience. Now, I would encourage you to study that passage to gain greater context, but God evidently wrote his law within our hearts. Now, we know that this is true because we see it early on in childhood. Any of you that, how many people have toddlers or little ones in your home? So I believe you beyond anybody else understand this idea that there's a conscience within their heart and you see your little ones battling in that conscience early on. I can remember my son Joshua and when he was two years old, this is 24 years ago, I can remember very, very explicitly some of those battles. I can think about it for all of my children. I can think of one time where because we had three children, the kids, uh, Leanne was uh, working hard with the kids, and Josh that day was especially clingy to mom. And so he was constantly under her feet. And so she needed some space. And so dad came to the rescue and intervened. And I said, Joshua, this is the playroom. This is the kitchen. Mom's going to cook, uh, cook dinner and you need to give mom some space. So you see this line here that goes from the kitchen to the, to the playroom. You are not allowed to cross that line. You cross that line, buddy, there's going to be problems. You understand? Uh-huh. So he gives you that look like everything's good. But then all of a sudden, you see the wheels turning. And all of a sudden, my son wants to flirt with disobedience. And so he just goes up to that threshold. And he starts flirting by swinging his foot out. And then he looks at me. I say, Joshua, don't do it. And of course, you know the end of the story. He kept flirting with the line, and eventually he was right under mom's feet, and then he got a spank, and then he had his time out, and then we had to correct all that whole process. Now, here's what's interesting. I could see the wheels turning. I could see things firing in all cylinders, and my kid was, was this warning system was going off. There's like red lights, beep, 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 beep. You shouldn't be doing this. Warning, warning, warning. 
don't do this. And he disobeyed. See, that's what we, God put the warning system inside of us to point to our need for God, to point to the need for truth. Now, fast forward as adults, this is what 1 Corinthians 8 says. 1 Corinthians 8 says that the person who has nothing to do with God becomes weak, and thus he defies his conscience. He defies his conscience and this internal guidance system within him because he's pursuing, he or she is pursuing sinful appetites. And you know that's what we do. For those that walk or have nothing to do with God, there, there may be something inside them saying, that's not right, that's not right, but they're going to do what they want to do because there's a stronger desire. It's now an adult desire as opposed to a two-year-old desire. And what God says is that our conscience is defiled at that point. And the only way that our defiled conscience can become clean is by one means and one means only. It's through Jesus Christ. This is what we're told in Hebrews 10, 22. It says, let us draw near to God, listen to the words, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a what? A guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. See, it's only then that we can serve God with a good conscience. In 2 Timothy 1, 3, it says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. Now, not only can we have a clear conscience when Christ has sprinkled us clean, but we know 1 Timothy says that we now have power in that conscience. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Hold on to your faith with a good conscience. My friends, if you don't know Christ yet, then understand that you still have a defiled conscience and that Christ more than anything wants to cleanse that conscience of yours, but that comes by submitting ourselves to Christ. And when we understand, when Christ, his Holy Spirit comes and lives within our hearts, he cleanses our heart, he cleanses our mind and begins a process of renewing us and making us more like him. But here's the deal. We being human beings of, of the flesh, we can still walk away. We can still make decisions and we can go back into old patterns of life and God's warning system is refreshed and it's going off and saying, nope, you shouldn't do that. You're a husband, you should be faithful to your wife. Wife, you should be faithful to your husband. There's warning systems. I don't want you to go into those old patterns. Come back. I want there to be victory in your life. See, for Paul... When he wrote this to the Corinthians, he wanted them to know that, hey, that I have a clean conscience. I have simplicity. I have godly sincerity. I have grace of God that's working, and I'm working supremely in, in, with you because of a good conscience. Now, when he closed the section out, he said he, he hopes that they will boast before him. What's it mean to boast before God in regards to Paul? It's just another way of saying, I want you to have confidence. As we go before God someday, I want you to have confidence that I dealt with you properly and that you dealt with me properly. And I want to go before God with a good conscience and a confidence that I ministered well before you. So here's the question. As believers, do other believers have confidence in us? See, we got to bring this to an application point for us every single day. What is the confidence that others have in us? 
Do people see us as faithful, reliable people of a good conscience? Now, I see several obstacles that can come in the way in the scriptures. And it's interesting. God says it's parts of our body that can cause the obstacles. For example, our mouth. Our mouth can be an obstacle. Listen to this in Proverbs 13. He says, guard your lips, or he who guards his lips guards his life. But he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. Do you know how quickly gossip or slander coming out of our mouth can ruin our reputation, can ruin the reputation of God because we're Christ followers? He says our eyes, our eyes can be an obstacle. He says in Matthew 6, this is Jesus speaking, he says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What is it that we're looking at? What is it that we're allowing to come through the eye gate? How about our ears? 2 Timothy 4 says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. You see, in the church, this is the, one of the problems in the Western church is that if we don't like what we hear in this church, we'll just go to another church until we find somebody that says exactly what I want them to hear. There's something screwed up with that system because what we need to be doing is presenting the word of God. And if you don't like what you hear, your beef isn't with this guy. It's with this guy. It's with God. And so we need to make sure that we are listening and checking the things that are said here to make sure it's the word of God. How about our hands? Second Thessalonians says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. God wants us to do something productive for him with our hands. Our feet, Proverbs chapter 4 says, ponder the path of your feet, and then all of your ways will be sure. I want to pray right now that God would remove all obstacles so that we would have a conscience of faith. Let's pray. Lord, as we pause to ponder, as we ask that you would do something in our life, that you would help us to be the faithful people that you want. Lord, you have provided a way for our conscience to be clean through the shed blood of Christ. Lord, we want all to be well with our soul. We want all to be well with our entire body. So we ask that you would take the burning coal from your holy fire and that you would use it to cleanse our lips, that you would forgive us for the things that we speak that do not bring you glory. May our eyes be filled with light. Lord, forgive us for the things that we look upon that are not holy. Lord, may our ears listen to your truth. Forgive us for giving way to gossip or listening to entertainment that grieves your heart. Lord, may our hands be set on working for you. Forgive us for working only for the things that matter to us. Forgive us when we slip into that temptation. And Lord, may our feet go places that bring you glory. Forgive us when our feet walk towards that which is evil. I trust that all is well with your soul. The second part of faithfulness that we need to have is 
in our character. Take a look at verse 15. We're going to look at that here in a minute. Let me set the context for this verse. In this next section, what Paul is going to do is he's going to defend why he could not visit the Corinthian church. Evidently, Paul had plans, and we're going to read about it in a moment. He had plans to come to the Corinthians and visit them and help restore the things that were broken. But in the process, God thwarted that and didn't allow him to go, and he concludes that, okay, it was for the better. But the enemy, those that had weaseled their way in amongst the Corinthians, the false leaders, were now taking this as an opportunity, seizing it as a way of discrediting Paul. Kind of reminds me of a politician. Politicians nowadays, any little opportunity that's given to him or her, they jump all over it, they exploit it. We've seen plenty of that going on in our media, haven't we? Well, this is exactly what they were doing. They were taking this opportunity. Now, what Paul says to them in this passage, he says, listen, I don't say yes out of one side of my mouth and then no out of the other side of my mouth. I don't speak double talk. Uh, my yes is yes and my no is no. Uh, he basically wants them to know that he's consistent. And so this is what he says. Look at what he says in verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. He wanted to see them restored. That's what he's talking about here. I wanted to come to you on my way to Macedonia and then come to, and, and to come back to you from that Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. The implication here is that it didn't happen. Then he says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and then no, no, and at the same time? There's the double talk. He's saying, nope, that's not it. And then in verse 18, he says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Sibanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but it was in him always yes. What's he talking about here? What's interesting is that in these last two verses, Paul closely aligns the character of God to his own track record. He says, as surely as God is faithful, we've been faithful. And it's interesting that I think it's okay for us to say our track record as an individual is closely connected to, the, to God. Now, God is always going to be faithful. His track record will never be wrong. He is always yes. He is always fulfilling his promises. But Paul's trying to say that we are trying to do as God has done and set that example and be faithful in our character. And I think he's being bold here. Church, I think what this is saying is that we, there's something to be said about a good track, track record of our own character. See, God is looking for each and one of us as Christ followers that you would have a track record of faithfulness in terms of who you are and your character. It's not what you are seen. It's not when you're just public. It's what you are behind the scenes. 
I know that when Mission View started three years ago, there were a good handful of people that were faithful people that said, we will go to help start this brand new ministry. And when they did that, they said, they, they were evaluating in their own hearts saying, you know what, we got to be obedient to God. This is our community. We want to be a part of that. But I do believe, and I'm not boasting here, but I believe that because of my faithfulness in ministry, they were able to have the confidence that this guy wasn't just going to get started, and when things got tough, he's going to be out of here. So there's something about our faithfulness as an individual. When we started the ministry, I told some of our staff that were newer to the community, I said, listen, you want to take risks? That's awesome. Let's just make sure that they're good risks and that, number one, that God is honored with that risk. But I want you to know that when you take risks that are not calculated and you're not thinking it through, it reflects on God, but I also want you to know it reflects on me. You're not taking trust out of your account. You're taking trust out of my account because people are following because of a leader that said they're going to be faithful here. And what am I saying here? That's not an egotistical Satan. What I'm trying to say is that a servant is always closely connected to the character of God. And you have a certain amount of trust that's going into your count daily when you're at the office, when you're in your workplace, when you're in the community. And when we do something that is outside the character of God, we're taking a withdrawal from that trust account. And we have to be careful of that because it's a reflection on God himself. Now, what's interesting is Paul gives three more verses here and he uses it to encourage the believers. This is what he says to them. He says, if you're closely connected to God and his character is flowing through you, this is what God wants to do for you. Verse 20, for all the promises of God are yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen for his glory. God is always faithful to his promises. And it is God who, note, here's the three things he does. He establishes us with you in Christ. And he has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now notice that there's the work of the Trinity here. Again, like we saw last week, we got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working to do these three things. Think about each of these. First of all, God establishes you. What does that mean? We're told in other places in the scripture what God's goal is for each and every Christ follower. The goal for each of us is that we would become like Christ. Ephesians 4.13 says that, that God wants us to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Kind of a high goal, right? That we would attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That we would be like Jesus. That is a very high and lofty goal of what God is forming in each and every one of us. And let me tell you that there's no shortcuts to instant maturity. There's no shortcuts. Just as we have to develop as a little child, we have to grow up in our faith in Christ. And what is necessary is that we are faithfully dedicated to him, that we grow in our passion in his word. This is how God develops us as an individual. When we come to church, 
we grow in our knowledge because God puts people that are further along than where you are in the faith to help you grow. That's true in the pulpit. That's true in the community groups. And this is why we are to make disciples. And this is the process of it. Our part is to be faithful. Our part is to show up and for us to learn. That's what we should do. Do we do it perfectly? No. This guy doesn't do it perfectly. But what I am striving for and pursuing is to know Christ. Here's my question. Is pursuing Christ your aspiration? Is pursuing Christ your aspiration? Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we have lots of aspirations in life. We have aspirations to go on vacation. We have aspirations to make a name for ourselves and our business. We have aspirations for advancements in the company. We have aspirations to have an awesome family. They're good things. We have aspirations for that special relationship. But do we have an aspiration and a passion to really love Jesus and to grow in our relationship with him? Please know that our job is to pursue him. But here's another thing you need to know. If you don't pursue him, he will pursue you. See, we're told in the scriptures this truth in Philippians. It says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. As soon as he got a hold of your heart, as soon as you yield your life, he's begun a discipleship process and he is going to, he's going to draw you in. He will use life pain to do that. He will use life joys to help form you. He will use just the natural process of life to help develop you as an individual. But know this, that God has established you and is seeking to establish each and every one of you. I hope that's encouraging to all of us because that's what he does. The second thing he does is he anoints you. He anoints you each of us. The word anoint is borrowed from the Old Testament. It's when a person was commissioned for a special assignment. For example, when David was chosen by God as king over Israel, God took Samuel and he said, I want you to anoint David. And he poured oil over his head. And as the oil poured over his head, it was a picture of the Holy Spirit being upon David and that God had a special assignment for David. Fast forward to the New Testament. When we give our life to Christ, he anoints us with the Holy Spirit who comes and lives within us. And please understand, from the moment of our salvation, he has a special assignment for us. You may not know what that special assignment is, but he does have that. And as you grow and mature, he will make that very clear to you. Sometimes we want to sit this one out. And we, God says, no, no, I'm going to pursue you. I want you to be in your mission. And your mission might be to be the best parent and raise godly children. That might be part of your mission. Your mission may change along the way. It may change after your kids are out of the house. He may have a different mission for you. It may, for you, it may be for you to infiltrate and influence your place of occupation. It may be that you have an impact on inner city children. It may be that you have influence on youth that are within the church or on children. I don't know what the mission is, but God has a mission for each and every one of us because he's anointed us. He has a mission for us. And finally, it says he seals us. He seals us. The word seal was taken of 
uh, of, of a parchment that was folded and uh, uh, sealed shut with wax and an embossment that was put upon it. And it could only be opened by the person that was getting the delivery. And so the idea is that God has set his seal on us, on the wax of our heart. He's embossed the Holy Spirit right there so that he can let you know that he is giving you power. God has done this in a, in a way to show the ownership that he has over us. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 6. It's, he, he does it to give us power, according to Acts 1.8. He has given us power to be his witnesses, and he gives it to, to show that we have an eternal destination sealed with God because we're told in John 5.24, Jesus said, he who has me and believes in me has passed from death to life. See, he establishes us, he anoints us, he seals us. All these things that he has done, do you realize all that God has done to develop your character? God has geared us for success. Let's pray and reflect on this. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great faithfulness. We thank you that we are connected to you. We thank you, Father, that in our connection to you, that you establish us. You are the one who has anointed us and that you set your seal in, of your Holy Spirit in us. Thank you. Forgive us, God, for not pursuing you. Sometimes we avoid the mission that you have for us. And sometimes we don't even realize all the things that you have done to grant us success. Lord, help us even now as we think about your faithfulness for us to think about how we are to be faithful to you. We come to the last section, which I, even though it's the shortest section, it is probably the most difficult because it's faithful and tough love. Paul is basically going to say, okay, guys, I've had to show some pretty tough love with you all, and that's not been an easy thing. And maybe that's the big picture here, that God has not allowed me to come back to you because he's given time for you to think through this. Take a look at verse 23. He says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but that we worked with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one who I have pained? As I wrote, as I did, so that I... I, and I wrote as I did so that I might have not suffered pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be made, uh, would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, this kind of sounds like that struggling father who has a son or daughter that he's disciplining, and he's just anguishing over them. And I believe Paul was harsh with the Corinthian church because they were living lives that were in disobedience. Last week I shared that they had a history of sexual immorality within the church. They had a history of division. They had a history of all kinds of things that were going on that were corrupt within the church. And Paul had to write letters that were very painful. And this is what he's talking about. And he's saying, I, I wanted to come to you, but maybe it was better that I didn't. 
because I needed God to do a work in your life. But there's pain and anguish. But know that what I've said to you is out of love. See, what we learn from here is that being faithful to God means that sometimes we have to show tough love to those that are being disobedient. I got to say that as a pastor, that this is probably the part of my role in the church that I hate the most. I don't want to show tough love ever. I don't want to do that, and I don't want to bring about church discipline on an individual. But Jesus Christ himself, in Matthew 18, kind of gave us the guideline. He said, if a brother is in sin, this is what you are to do. You are to take another person with you. And if he doesn't listen to that person, take somebody from the church with you. And if he doesn't listen, you eventually have to turn him over to the enemy. And it's very difficult to do that within the body of Christ because you love an individual, but the reality is God hates the sin. And if there's no standard of discipline, if there's no standard, then they will not understand how grievous their sin is before God. Church, what we're talking about is holding the body to a higher standard. And when you become a member at Mission View, just know this, we don't discipline like all over the place. In my history of uh, 30 years, there's only been a handful of people that we've ha had to do church discipline. Praise God, many times there's repentance, and that's an awesome thing. But also, there's many times that it's not. But what we want in church membership, it's you saying, yes, at this time when I'm thinking right, yes, when God, I'm walking with God in a right manner, with my mind and with my heart, I'm saying, I want held accountable to this family. I want to be held accountable to this journey of life that I would always do what's right in the eyes of God. It gets difficult when we have to show tough love to a father or to a mother or to a son or a daughter or a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law or to a friend. It gets difficult. And I will tell you that when church discipline takes place, sometimes it's messy because the one being disciplined, the one that's being encouraged to, be, to come back lives in this rebellion and all of a sudden in their sin, they start seeing things in a different way and they think that you're trying to turn the tables on them. You're trying to take the joy away from them. They want to live. God wants them to be happy. And so you see all of this kind of stuff that goes on. There's all kinds of rationalizing. And in a sense, they start to blame you as an individual. And it starts to, it's so weighing upon your heart. And you say, how, oh, God, is there, any, is there any solution in all of this? Without realizing the individual can become narcissistic and not seeing their own sin just seeing the fault in the process, the fault in what you're saying, and you're being another judgmental Christian. But my friends, God calls us to tough love at times. And this is the difficult thing that we take from this. We sometimes have to be faithful in being tough, even when it's with our own family, with our own friends. During this last Selah, what I want you to do is I want you to think of that person that's walked away from God. And I want you, before God, 
I want you to lift that person up. If you want to come to this altar and pray and lift them up before God, you can do that. If you want to sit in your seat, you can do that. But right now, as an application to God's word, what I want us to do is to respond to the Holy Spirit and for us to lift up those that we care so deeply about that they would come back to follow after Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is a heavy, heavy assignment that you give us. A heavy assignment to show tough love. And we know in the scriptures that you put that, that upon us because you love us. And you put that responsibility on us to show that kind of love and speaking the truth in love to other people. And so, Lord, right now, we have people on our minds. We have people on our hearts. And during this song, Lord, we, we think of how you always are there and always are faithful. But Lord, right now, we want to lift up those around us that are heavy upon our hearts. And we bring them in application to you. Because, Lord, you're the only one that can change their heart. And so we come to your altar right now to lift up those that we love. Will you stand while we sing this last song and respond as you want?